Okay, so my goal for today, since last week was just kind of dipping our toe in and, and getting exposed a little bit to what I uh, hope to do in the next few months, is um, to do a quick review and then jump into this chapter, maybe, um, on Psalm 50. Uh, there's no tight agenda here. Um, part of it is adjusting according to the pace that you all want to go. These handouts are not outlines. Um, what, what they are is I have this draft book that's before a publisher now, and um, I, I uh, suggested that that might be a possibility if people wanted to read the chapters. Ideally, um, the one we're going to talk about before the week we actually talk about it, then we can get some good dialogue and discussion going. Um, so uh, the first chapter is really introductory and an outline, and then the next chapter, what I'm doing is giving <clears throat> some uh, big categories to be exposed to that will help you not just in reading the Psalms of Asaph, but the Psalter generally, okay? Uh, so I'll go over some of that today, um, and let me beg your indulgence because some of this, I realized in the first chapter, as I mentioned last week, is a little heady and a little theoretical, um, but if you can get exposed to it and then just take this home and mesh it with what I've said in class or ask me questions in the weeks to come, the ideas presented here at the beginning are going to appear time and time again when we look at the Psalms. But then we take one Psalm per week, or maybe two, we'll see. Um, and um, I, I do think that after you plow through the first couple of chapters, especially the latter material, subsequent material, is, is much more accessible um, and applicable. There's questions at the end you might even want to look at and then bring your further questions uh, or ideas um, as you interact with that material. So let me go back and review. Um, this is about the Asaphic Psalms. Oh, I should also mention, so I think there's probably, uh, Catherine could answer, handouts from last week, and then for next week, we'll try and do Psalm 73. So out in the foyer, there's, there's a chapter on Psalm 73, if you can pick up one of those. And uh, ideally, try and read it or skim through it beforehand. Um, so the Asaphic Psalms are Psalm 50, as a quote-unquote standalone and then Psalm 73 to 83. And uh, I was talking about the significance of silence in modern culture, and then also as a theme uh, in these psalms as well. Uh, then we talked briefly about genre. Let me say a little bit more about that, because that may be a new way of thinking about reading the scriptures, but it's a very important uh, category to have in mind, especially when you're thinking about the psalms. Um, this all got going, um, as briefly mentioned last week, with a couple German scholars, one named Hermann Gunkel and another named Mowinkel. And um, nobody quite reads the Psalter the same since Gunkel introduced his ideas. Okay? And in a nutshell, uh, very simply stated, what Gunkel was doing was saying, that these psalms originated in the temple for temple practice according to certain types, okay? So certain psalms read like 
hymns like we read in the call to worship this morning, obviously. Psalm 150, every line has an imperative to praise the Lord. Uh, some read like laments, okay, uh, where uh, we get these authorized ways of speaking to God where we pour out our distresses and our troubles. But then, interestingly, they usually almost, except for Psalm 88, take a positive turn towards the end of the psalm. So they start out in mourning, complaining about a distress, uh, but then there's a turning point where they end in uh, some kind of uh, praise. And that's very typical. What's very, I think, exciting is that actually matches the whole direction of the Psalter. So if you look at the first book of the Psalter, Book 1, Psalm 1 through 41, the vast majority of psalms are laments. If you look towards the end of the Psalter, um, the vast majority of the psalms are praise. And so individual psalms in this regard tend to match the direction of the Psalter. It has a direction. In fact, an argument can even be made that the entire Psalter is a reflection of our pilgrim life. So, for example, Psalm 149 has a great battle scene. And at the end, it's all praise. Remind you of anything? (laughs) Um, And that's actually, I think, a claim can be made that that matches uh, redemptive history as a whole. So then you ask, well, what's a congruent tune for Psalm 150? Uh, Probably not Handel's Messiah with all the fanfare at the end, you know, the Hallelujah Chorus. Probably more like waterfall music, okay? So to use a Tolkien analogy, Aragon has taken king has taken off his uh, you know bloodied garments and now is in his royal uh, vestiture and uh, so you want something you know now there's peace now there's I preached on Revelation 21 way back when in this church so now now there's no more sea there's no more chaos and so anyway that pattern affects the entire psalter so. Genre has been hard to define. I mean, we talk about genre in movies, genre in, in music, of course. But in books, it's a little more difficult. I alluded to the reason why last week. We don't have anything like Aristotle's Poetics, which is a fragmentary but extant uh, template of various genres in Western literature. Um, um, but nevertheless, we notice these, these patterns, okay? We have royal psalms. We have Thanksgiving psalms. The Thanksgiving psalm differs from a lament in that you have an embedded lament that has an answer to it. Like this afternoon, if you go home and read Psalm 30, you'll see in there that uh, there was a distress, but it was answered. And then the psalmist says, oh, you turned my mourning into dancing. Okay, And and so that's a Thanksgiving uh, psalm. So we see these patterns, these templates. Okay, And uh, I give a definition at the top of page 12 there. Some people have defined it in different ways, but usually it's understood as identifying texts that have similarities in common, such as structure, mood, and content. Okay, so you can read through the Psalter and have these various categories. We'll do this when we look at the Psalms of Asaph. I think this is a great collection to do this kind of uh, thing. And, And then you can often identify what kind of genre we're in. Now, why is this important? Uh, let me say a few more words about introducing genre because it is, it is so important. Genre is one kind of context. So think about it this way. If I, let's say it's Psalm 30. If I said, okay, 
We're going to study Psalm 30 in Sunday school this morning. Should I look at that in the context of Psalm 29 and Psalm 31? Would that give me more help, that context? Psalm 29 is not a lament, okay, uh, or thanksgiving uh, to him. Um, and, uh, or would looking at Psalm 30, which is a thanksgiving psalm, would it be more helpful to look at it in the context of other thanksgiving psalms? Okay, does that make sense? So, um, you know, looking at it from the standpoint of genre, not immediate uh, context is important, okay? But also, let me say that um, genre is all, also uh, sets up an expectation. So last week I said, because Phil Howard's always sitting in the back, um, you know, you don't read Genesis like, a, you know, study guide for the CPA exam, all right? Um, and then I got his attention for a minute, to, away from his baby, just for a minute. And uh, so he's pretty smitten with that kid. Um, so um, he's not here today, so I can talk about him. Uh, <clears throat> but think about it this way. Uh, certain people who write about literature and linguists who have tried to get after genre talk about it as being rule-governed behavior. So in other words, um, if you work for a company uh, like Qualcomm or another company, then there's certain rules, right? Or like Westminster, okay? There's a certain culture or ethos to Westminster. And, you know, you map the field and you learn, you learn uh, you know, where the red flags are and where the, where the buttons are, and, and you, you behave according to the rules, right? Um, and uh, like as a professor, there's certain expectations of myself and Ryan that, you know, we don't want to break those rules or we probably won't get a paycheck. Um, and, um, or when you step onto the gridiron. Uh, well, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't work on the gridiron, okay? I mean, um, you hope that your guys, if they identify as Christians, we know will lean over and help the guy off the ground after they've, you know, knocked him down, uh, but nevertheless, uh, there's a different set of rules that apply. Um, other people have used industry to talk about this. So that's important um, for a number of reasons because, you see, we come to text with certain expectations. And this becomes a kind of contract, if you will, between an author of a text and a reader of a text, okay? So, um, and this is all tied up with a very influential um, um, Russian writer named Bakhtin, uh, where there's a dialogue that goes on between readers and, and between authors. And so, there's a certain kind of uh, expectation when you come to a text. Like, whoever wrote Psalm 150, where every single line talks about praise the Lord, uh, that... They're, they're intending and their intention when they authored that to have you, the reader, read it in a certain way and use it in a certain way, okay? Uh, so much so that some Christian um, philosopher types have called genre a covenant of discourse, okay? In other words, there's a cooperative principle that goes on between readers and, and, and writers um, such that that there's this dialogue going on that actually 
governs how we read a psalm. A few more thoughts. So, um, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm reading a lament, then already I'm being drawn into that lament in a certain way that I'm going to expect certain things out of it. And it would be unfair to the intention of whoever wrote that lament if I superimposed different categories like a royal psalm genre on it when it was never intended to be read that way. Does that make sense? I mean, this is, it's, I'm trying to make it as simple as possible, um, but this is very, very important. Because you just don't pick up and read the words like the Wall Street Journal, okay? Form is as important to meaning as the words written on the page, especially in the Psalms, okay? Um, maybe I emphasize that too much, but um, in some of our conservative circles, uh, we've not been as sensitive to that as we should, okay? And so that's why I um, set that out uh, there. All right. Now, this might be a little unsettling too, but see, genre's like a map. Um, all of you are probably familiar somewhat with road maps. Now you're more familiar with 3D maps, you know, when you ask Siri to bring up directions. Um, or, uh, but probably most people in this room can remember what road maps look like. Some people, no, Justin can't, right? Some people, uh, some people um, uh, will be familiar with topographical maps, especially if you've spent any time in the military and that kind of thing, okay? Are those maps a absolute representation of what is there in reality? That's right. So if I showed you a topographic map of Yosemite Valley, if you knew anything about those lines, and the closer they are together, um, the steeper uh, the terrain, because they used to take those um, by an airplane that flew over, and then up in San Francisco area, uh, USGS would put it in a machine that would make those topographical lines absolutely precisely representing the elevation gains or losses. So if you knew the mechanisms behind the map, I mean, the same thing with road map, okay? You got a, a signs and sigla down in the corner telling you things, right? But what you're doing in your mind is you're imputing meaning, greater meaning to the map based upon what that map is telling you, but it's not a photographic representation. Right? Well, why do I tell you that? Because many Christians want to read their Bibles as if it's a photographic representation. <laughs> um, when it's, it's, it's not exactly. Um, so here one author... Um, after saying, I'll read uh, some of his words, he says, um, genres are cognitive strategies, mental strategies, with diverse ways of envisioning the world. This is on page 13. A genre, in other words, is not only a mode of communication, but a mode of experiencing and thinking about the world. Okay? So we have to develop generic competence. And if you listen carefully to that quote, you also see that this is not just like Christmas wrapping. So I say, okay, uh, Psalm 73 is a wisdom psalm. It comes wrapped in this wrapping of wisdom. 
recognizing that that's the, the way it is actually shapes your very expectation what you get out of that text. It shapes the way you think about God's word. And um, so you notice the quote on page 13. Unlike a photograph down at the bottom of the page that shows up everything there is to be seen, a map is a symbolic representation of selected aspects of reality. So the diverse literary forms of scripture, read genres, this whole discussion happens within a discussion about genre, are like different kinds of maps, maps that have been collected together in a unified atlas, the Bible. As with maps, so with the forms of biblical discourse. Each renders reality selectively according to its own scale or key. The biblical stories, commands, promises, songs, prophecies, and didactic discourse all mediate God's communicative action, but not all in the same way. So we don't read the epistle to Romans like we do Psalm 150. We don't read Romans 5 like we do Genesis 1 and 2. We might derive meaning from one of those texts that was never intended to do that if we violently read the text that way. Um, so um, what they share, however, is the same basic orientation. The canon is a unique compass that points not to the north, but to the church's north star, Jesus Christ. Um, so, and that leads into this, back to the discussion reviewing about um, the rule of faith. So, remember I was introducing a proper understanding of the rule of faith, something Irenaeus introduced to the church early on. Uh, and you can see here on page 15, just to review what we talked about last week on this, uh, is to see the right pattern that was intended by reading the scriptures correctly and redemptive historically. So that we don't see a dog, we see Christ, the king, okay, as we read it. And this was actually used in the early church to argue against heretics who were suggesting Scripture reveals something different than Christ, okay? Um, but you can read what I say there. Um, a lot of people don't like this rule of faith. I was actually kind of um, entertained by how many people, when I asked about Bart Ehrman, had heard about Bart Ehrman. Um, so it was mostly, I judge, uh, the millennials who are sitting in the back, okay? Well, Bart Ehrman uh, is all about destroying our traditional notions of the canon of Scripture, Okay? Um, and <clears throat> so this is a very powerful tool uh, to argue for an orthodox position on the canon of Scripture. We don't want to create a norm, a canon, above the canon. What we have in the Scripture, in the 66 books of the Bible, is sufficient uh, for all our covenantal faith and life. It's all we need. In fact, it not only governs our worship and prescribes what we do in our worship, it also prescribes what we're to do in, 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 in church government. We usually talk about it applying to worship, but it also applies to church government. So in other words, we're only allowed to do what God tells us to do. We don't want to make ourselves, as your catechism says, wiser than God by doing something different than we're told to do. So anyway... Um, and this is very important, as you'll see when we get further in the book. Um, I'll bring this out. Sometimes you may not even recognize it's like, oh, he's doing that rule of faith thing there. In other words, God already had a book out before the New Testament authors came along. 
We don't see Christ in the Old Testament just because the New Testament authors say, oh, Christ was revealed there and cite, you know, Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or whatever. No, Christ was already there in Psalm 22, okay? And that was applying theological pressure against the apostles in light of the death and resurrection of Christ. So they go, aha, you know, okay? Uh, but the Old Testament saints had aha movements too without the New Testament writings because God already had a book out before the New Testament. 77% of your Bible called the Hebrew Scriptures in which Christ is revealed according to Luke 24 and all of it. Okay? All right, so that's the rule of faith. And then uh, why... So one thing I wrestled with in this project, why... Psalm 50, why is Psalm 50 separated from Psalm 73 to 83? So last week we talked about uh, an idea that I latched upon based upon hearing an Old Testament scholar at a conference where silence is a major theme in our culture and in these Psalms of Asaph. And I said, I, I think he's right, but I don't think he got it entirely correct. So, as you know, if you read Psalm 50, or we'll look at it in a minute, there, God is not silent. In fact, twice the scriptures make the claim that God is not silent. Uh, there in Psalm 50, the heavens declare the justice of God. And then Psalm 73 through 83 are test cases against that notion. Is God silent in light of a crisis? Like the temple of Jerusalem, you know, when enemies come in and ransack the temple, Psalm 74, and other things, okay? So Psalm 73 to 83 um, is about that. Now, what I'm doing here is I'm trying to answer the question, which if any of you know um, Bob Godfrey and his love for the Psalter is a major concern uh, for him. In other words, why the shape of the Psalter in the way that it is, okay? And... Um, so I'm not going to go through all this right here. I'll just give you the bottom line, and later, if you're interested, you can follow up on this. But there's actually been a fair amount of work on this. So this is another kind of context. One kind of context is to think about, what kind of psalm is this? Is it a royal psalm? Is it a Thanksgiving psalm? If it's a Thanksgiving psalm, I should compare it with other Thanksgiving psalms, even though other Thanksgiving psalms may not occur immediately before the psalm. See what I mean? Well, another kind of context is to say, even though, in my view, uh, the Psalter was put together over many centuries um, by many editors, and you can get that just by looking at the titles of the Psalms, um, the final product probably came somewhat late in the monarchy, even down in the Persian period, around 500, 400. Uh, then we want to ask, well, God didn't just let that whole process go on by itself, okay? Through his singular care and providence, he was design, designing and working for those editors to produce the equivalent of a Trinity Psalter hymnal for Israel, just like, you know, uh, not just like, it was actually extraordinarily different. But <laughs> uh, just like he was working through us as we were trying to put together our Trinity Psalter hymnal. Now, hear what I said extraordinarily different, and, uh, <laughs> but you get my point, okay? God is active, and he's, you know, working through this process as well. So it behooves us to say, 
Okay, if we're going to study Psalm 75, what do we notice about studying Psalm 74 occurring immediately preceding that and Psalm 76? It's another kind of context. Okay? Or when we ask the question, why the Asaphic Psalms? If you look at this chart at the bottom, I'm just going to give you the bottom line, no pun intended. And um, basically, there was a, uh, much of this work has happened in the last decade or two, okay? There was a guy named Gerald Wilson who noticed that the royal psalms occur at three of the four critical junctures in the Psalter. There's basically five books in the Psalter, okay? You can get this just from your English Bible. Uh, it'll, say, it'll say book one at Psalm 1. And then at Psalm 42, it'll say book two, okay, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, there's five books, not of equal length. And so um, what's interesting is uh, he said the royal psalms occur at three or four critical junctures. And if you look on page 18, there uh, I'm communicating to you the discussion that's gone on. Psalm 50 functions as a bridge between the Korahite collection of Psalm 42 and Psalm 49 and the second Davidic collection of Psalm 51 uh, through 52, okay? In other words, if you open up your Bible and you turn to Psalm 42, as the heart longs, the deer longs, pants, etc., well, that's the beginning of book two. How many Davidic Psalms are there between Psalm 1 and Psalm 42. All of them. <laughs> okay? But then suddenly Psalm 42 goes Korahite. The Korahites were like the Asaphites. They're responsible for temple surface. Okay? So then you go, okay, now we get these Korahite Psalms in Psalm uh, 42 to 49. And then suddenly you get a second Davidic collection in Psalm 51 through 72. So if you just look at the titles, they say Psalm of David. Well, why that skip? What's going on? You know, we're trying to get back in the mind of these ancients and say, you know, what's their intentionality behind this? It probably wasn't just random. And then in Psalm 73, what do you have? Asaph, 73 to 83. So Psalm 50 stands alone as a kind of bridge between this first Korahite collection, 42 to 49, and the second Davidic collection. So the Korahite selection ends at 49. Davidic collection picks up again, 51 to 72. And then, and then uh, 73 to 83 are Asaphite. They're all by, um, or um, ascription is given to, or attribution is given to the Asaphites, okay? Well, and the reason, the reason for this is um, Psalm 73 to 83 represent a crisis, okay? S um, this whole thing is, as the chart shows, in a covenantal frame, okay? And then um, there's a crisis uh, that goes all the way up to Psalm 89, uh, and uh, as shown in the chart, and ends there because basically that's all about the Davidic covenant. Are the promises of the Davidic covenant going to come true at the end of book three? That's the crisis. And uh, that's answered in Psalm 132, another Davidic uh, psalm, 
that basically shows, yes, God is going to answer the hopes of the Davidic covenant. But what we're at in the center here is Psalm 50, setting up the thesis, God is not silent. Psalm 73 through 83 uh, basically show this crisis of faith and crisis about whether God is really going to answer the Davidic promises, okay? And, and we're going to see that expressed in different nuanced ways um, for these Israelites. And, and that's why silence plays such an important theme, okay, uh, in this Asaphite collection, 73 to 83. And so we'll keep coming back to that, all right? All right, that's all I want to say on the books of the Psalter, okay? Now, since this is as clear as mud, let's turn to uh, Psalm 50, okay? Because I want to get at least in the uh, shallow end of Psalm 50 and see how some of this plays out. Um, there's so much prophetic language. Some people have called this, so now back to genre, okay? So now we go to the category of genre. And this is what I want to inculcate in you. This is what I want to get in, in you to think about. So when I read a psalm, one of the first questions I should be answering is, is this a lament? Is this a royal psalm? Is this a thanksgiving psalm? That'll help me be a better reader of the Psalter. Okay? Um, and so when you get to Psalm 50, um, <clears throat> some people have seen this as a kind of covenant renewal liturgy. I think probably because there's so much language that's prophetical. Remember, the prophets are like covenant lawyers who bring indictments uh, against the people for their breach of the covenant. They really were. They were like lawyers, and the language is very legal in the prophets. So in, in uh, the psalm, as we look at it, uh, you're going to hear this prophetic language. So probably it's, it's uh, more along uh, the lines it should be uh, thought of as a kind of prophetic uh, liturgy. So I open up with stories about silence, and I tried to pepper this with a lot of examples from modern culture. How many people know Cormac McCarthy's work? Works? Okay, a few. So I, I basically cite uh, his novel about the road, which was later made into a movie. Okay, and the major theme in that is silence. It's kind of sad, actually. I'm pretty amazed at how popular Cormac McCarthy is in our culture, especially with millennials. And um, <clears throat> so there's some kind of apocalyptic disaster. So the father and the son are trying to survive. There's only a few survivors, and they're, so they're constantly watching out for these other people that may hunt them. And then finally the father dies at the end, and, uh, and um, he's taken under the wings of another family. But sadly, then at the, at the end, after some comments about God being silent, and we are now the prophets, uh, he says, I find it easier to talk to my dead father than to God. Um, so that's kind of where the novel leaves off. Sad commentary. Um, but uh, probably accurate reflection of where our culture is at. Um, so anyway, it's probably a, a prophetic liturgy. And then this is the outline. God appears as judge. There's a popular modern notion, right? Um, so God comes as judge. Um, that's clear 
in all the Psalms of Asaph and especially in Psalm 50, okay, uh, right from the get-go, okay? And, um, and so, for example, in the first several verses, it might be helpful if you look and uh, follow along here. I give you, um, on page 23, um, that's not the ESV, that's basically my wooden translation. Most of these are very wooden translations that I did for the Psalter Hymnal Committee. It's not meant to be in Felicitous good English necessarily, but to give a feel for what the Hebrew actually says without coming and beating yourself up in Hebrew up the road at 1725 Bear Valley Parkway, okay? And um, so it's, it's clear that he, at the beginning of the psalm, God is coming as judge, okay? And, uh, and uh, from uh, Mount Zion, beautiful in holiness, uh, he um, shines forth. There's a nice pun there. Here, just listen. Mitzion miklal yofi Elohim so he comes beautiful in holiness and uh, um, shining forth, I guess you could say. Uh, but notice our God comes and he is not silent. So see, against this whole theme that we're going to see in the Psalms of Asaph, in the midst of the people's crisis, right at the beginning, Psalm 50 of the Psalms of Asaph, God is not silent. Okay, actually he speaks, and then it goes on and uh, actually says in, what, verse uh, 3, um, the heavens uh, call out from above and to the earth below uh, to judge his people. And um, so, so uh, he breaks forth from the heaven as a judge. Justice breaks out from heaven. So right at the beginning of the Psalms of Asaph, you get the notion that he is, he is not silent. He has spoken. Uh, in verse 6, it says, um, look at verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God is a judge, okay? And um, so right at the beginning, you see that Scripture affirms that God's there, and he speaks. And actually, you may not pick this up in the words, but you can pick it up in my reading. He speaks in a storm. Okay, so you know how we get the hot east winds around here? Chiracos, Santa Ana's? That's the exact climatological conditions that they experience over in Palestine. So these winds whip up at 70, 80 miles an hour, cause firestorms, wolf flowers, or whatever. That's how they said God manifests his presence when he makes an appearance like that. You're talking about these torrential Maybe that's the wrong word. These hot, dry east winds, okay, uh, for them that communicates God's presence, the manifestation of his presence, okay? And we're going to see that uh, throughout as well, okay? Uh, he speaks from Zion, morning and evening. Notice he speaks all through all, uh, through all creation. Um, and um, he speaks from the heaven below, and he addresses um, the earth beneath, okay? And... Um, then he makes two judgment speeches. So this is clearly, you can, you can see this in your Bibles. Notice, first of all, in verse, I think it's verse 6 in the English Bible. Does it say, hear my people? Seven. Okay, well, the versification sometimes is one verse off. So he says, hear my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. Uh, the Lord, your God, am I. Okay? So... Um, 
So the first judgment speech is verses 7 to 15, and he's speaking to his people. Okay? Now look at verses 15. La rasha amar Elohim. To the wicked, he says, God says. So now he's going to address the wicked. Okay? The point is, God doesn't like external ritualism when he talks in this first judgment speech to his people. He, he doesn't like it when people just go through the motions, no matter how good and traditional their liturgy may be. <laughs> he wants heartfelt obedience. He doesn't merely want their sacrifices. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God wants, remember I said last week, covenantal obedience and praise. Now, as soon as I saw that, I go, ah, there it is, active obedience of Christ. I'm all over this, okay? But Israel can't do it. But there's got to be a true son of Israel who will do it. Render proper worship. Give covenantal obedience and praise. Okay? That's the question that's going to be begged throughout these psalms. Where's the true son of Israel who will offer this kind of righteousness that has merit, that uh, uh, pleases and appeases God? Okay? So that's clear. And then in the second judgment speech, um, he's confronting the wicked. So maybe some hypocrites, but obviously this seems like a different people. Uh, he, he addresses the, in the first speech up through 15, Ami, my people, here he addresses the Rasha, the wicked. And he says, you guys are really bad. You're hypocrites. Okay? Um, you, you speak slanderously against your own kith and kin, your brothers. Uh, you commit adultery. You fall in with adulterers. You fall into their ways. And so God's calling them out and um, speaking very much um, in the language of a judge. Okay? And so, and there's all this forbearance and patience going on, and then the word silence occurs in verse 21 again. Uh, all these things you do, and if I kept silent, in other words, I can no longer keep silent. Now God can't wink at sin, so he's going to speak, okay? And um, so again, we get uh, the silence of God, and this is clearly making the claim that God's patience won't last forever, and eventually, he will come in a storm theophany, a storm, you know, a manifestation of God, which they described as like the hot east wind coming. And then you get the summary statement at the end, verse 23, which is very difficult. The Jewish Publication Society, uh, which I appreciate about it, they know their Hebrew very well, they say, meaning of Hebrew uncertain. <laughs> so the best that I could do is at the bottom of 25. The one who sacrifices a thank offering honors me. And the one who prepares a way, I will show the salvation of God. Or more literally, I will show him the salvation of God. So that's the last verse. That's the conclusion. So after these two judgment speeches, now the uh, psalmist represents God as saying, um, I, will, um, I will honor the one who honors me uh, in this way. So, what does this remind us of? Um, the last verse clearly demonstrates, page 26, that the giving of salvation is on God's side. Our responsibility is merely receiving it with a proper response of gratitude and obedience. 
And also, it reminds us that those of us who profess the name of the one true God should adorn our profession with thankful hearts, a sincere obedience, and orderly worship. Not just empty formalism or ritualism. Um, and also that God is there and he is not silent. Um, and also, very importantly, the importance of listening. I'm pretty mesmerized by this whole concept of silence, as I alluded to last week. It's absolutely integral to a correct understanding of language and speech. Notice the pregnant pause. Why? Because you're anticipating what I'm going to say next, which would have no meaning apart from the pregnant pause. Now it has more meaning because of the pregnant pause, right? So this psalm teaches us the importance of listening. As the famous erudite W. Robert Godfrey says, uh, page 26, the failure of Israel to hear the word of the Lord was rectified by God's own son, Jesus, always heard and honored God's word. His father delighted in him for that reason. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus perfectly listened and followed so that his people would have a complete and perfect salvation. The father continues to call his people to listen, now directing them to the words of his son, Matthew 17, 5. Listen to him. The salvation and health of the church depend on it, uh, continuing to listen to God's word. Uh, and then that quote from Martin Buber at the end that's worth reading this afternoon for your edification, who says that um, uh, blue-collar workers more than the bourgeois have a tendency to listen well. But anyway, um, so um, that's Psalm 50. Uh, that's Psalm 50 in a, in a quick sketch, but I'm trying to demonstrate to you can't do it all in 45 minutes. I'm trying to demonstrate to you against the categories of genre, rightly understanding um, the context of these psalms, and then this very important theme of silence, how you ought to approach each of these test cases as we march through 73 to 83. Ryan. First, I don't think we should get so myopically focused on the kinds of sacrifices that that's going to be the key that's going to unlatch everything. However, um, obviously, he's, I mean, that's a big question to have to talk about what kind of ritual impurities, let alone sins, would trigger the necessity to bring the different kinds of sacrifices. I think what he's saying, based upon the whole context of the psalm, is I don't want your mechanistic worship, whether it's a thanksgiving offering, whether it's a, a burnt offering, or any other kind of offering. I don't need that. I mean, oh, there's an earlier line in there. If I'm hungry, should I tell you? You know, <laughs> I don't need anything from you. Uh, and um, so um, I think since the first speech is against his people, then he's saying, you know, no sacrifice can satisfy. Since the second speech is to the wicked, I think the kinds of categories that we have in this church about 
proper thanksgiving being to God because he does it all, right? Guilt, grace, gratitude is the kind of thing. You wicked people, you need to get in a place where you can even fulfill your vows to me. Well, you can't do that in and of yourself, I guess, in light of right relationship to God, in light of the sermon this morning. You, you, you've got to go back even a whole nother step. I'll accept your thank, I'll accept your thanksgivings, but not when you're being a bunch of adulterers along the side and breaking the ninth commandment. Is that helpful at all? Yeah. Questions? Comments? Yes. Warms the cockles of my heart to hear you say that. So look, up, up the sleeve, I have this whole um, toolkit. Okay? And what I'm trying to do is take this toolkit and, and get you to have it up your sleeves too. So that when you come um, to the scriptures, you, you read intelligently. And in light of what we said last week, there's a single literal sense. But that doesn't mean literalism in a negative sense, me and my Bible. That means that um, there's a sense that was intended by the author that I'm obligated ethically to read in the same way. And remember we did the thing with multiple bouncing? You know, there's that single sense, but it may have multiple reference points. And we'll see that as we get in. That, that was generated by a question in the back. That's a little bit more high-level thing. But look, here, I'll give you one example. It, it's not just me and my Bible, you know, in, in the, uh, in, in the uh, privacy of my prayer closet or whatever. It's also what I'm trying to help you do is Learn to read in a way that's in keeping with the way the church has read through the centuries. So, you know, we have people in the room who have struggled, I think, with some of the things they've heard in the university, okay? So there's a whole assumption after the 18th century that the way we read the Bible is we need to go back and understand their original historical context and how they would have read what was written and then that exhausts the meaning of what was intended. There's some truth to that. But it's not the whole truth. And guess what? Before the Enlightenment, there were 18 centuries of Christians that were reading the scriptures, and they got some meaning out of it. Imagine that. <laughs> so... I'm, uh, and, and there's a quote in there uh, by Walking Houston about that that has to do with the rule of faith. Okay? So just because they didn't have all these scientific methods to read the scriptures, sophisticated methods, they were faithfully often reading the scriptures because they had the spirit and the scriptures are clear. But the scriptures are not always equally clear. So the more of the toolkit you can bring to not only the Psalms but all kinds of various parts of scriptures, then the thicker understanding or meaning you will derive as opposed to a thin meaning. Or you'll protect yourself against making mistakes. Is that helpful? Yeah, so if you feel a little stretch, it is. I'm trying to, yeah, that's my obligation as a teacher. Well, I don't know. If I don't get invited back, maybe not. I'll give you tools that, you know, 
um, will help you not just be a more sophisticated reader, but a, a more faithful reader. And God doesn't want us to park our brains when we do that. It, it takes hard work. And, and the, more, the more you can bring to the table asking the right questions, the, the better reader you'll be. So you're feeling exactly what I would hope you would. I think it's, yes, go ahead. Okay, so the question is, um, if I can reframe it, um, that, um, so um, that's a great question, and thanks for sharing, and thanks for the way in which you shared it. So what I would say in response, and then I think we need to start wrapping things up so we're not doing injury to the other classes, right? 12.15, do we end? Yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll try and make this quick, and we'll continue, okay, as we come back. Is, um, we never want to communicate as officers in the church, well, you have to have this, this category and this category and, and uh, you know, take this ancient language and this, and then you'll, then you'll have this true, better understanding of Scripture, you know, higher. No, we're not trying to communicate that. Our confessions make quite clear that God's salvation is abundantly clear uh, as we read the Scriptures. But at the same time, our confessions also make known the need for the teaching office in the church so that um, ministers and officers, elders especially, can help people learn to read their Bible better and better the more, more, more we learn and the more we see. So we can have, I used the illustration earlier, a thicker, deeper understanding as opposed to a thinner understanding. Quickly. So I can remember when I was planning a church up in the Pacific Northwest, right after seminary, uh, Dennis came to me, obviously a bright guy who'd studied a lot of science, but um, pretty, pretty simple in many ways, too. He said, I want to help you with planting this church. In other words, I want to get out my checkbook and write checks. I was like, oh, this is good. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and he goes, yeah, I've just been reading the book of Revelation. Now, as a cocky, young Seminary student, I'm going, oh, do you read Hendrickson or Greg Beale or what, you know? And it's like, I, no, I didn't read anything. I just read Revelation, and it's like, Jesus is going to win, and I want a piece of the act. Dennis is saying, you just said, right? It's like you can see the beauty. You can see the king, not the dog, right? It, 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 right. But also, even Augustine, as learned as this early church father was, said, if I had my whole life to live over again, I would just scratch the surface of uncovering the treasure trove, you know, beauties that are there. So what we're trying to do is just help you uncover more jewels. Yeah. Yeah, from Scripture. All right. Let me close. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. And uh, we pray that you would bless us throughout this day. And thank you for the engagement and participation here. And uh, Lord, we just um, praise you for your work, especially as we've had an opportunity to meditate upon it uh, this Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.